Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. I alluded to this as the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, when the reality is this, that the Reformation that we celebrate was not started 500 years ago. The Reformation that we celebrate was only rediscovered 500 years ago. The Reformation that gathered us all here this morning took place long before Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses to that door of the Church at Wittenberg. That Reformation that we look back to had already taken place by the time the author of Hebrews wrote his epistle, and he actually refers to it. So if you look in Scripture, not first at Second Peter, but at the book of Hebrews, which we preached through last year, the book of Hebrews chapter 9, we actually find a reference to this Reformation. He writes these words. This is chapter 9, beginning in verse 9. He says, according to this arrangement, and the arrangement that he's talking about is the Levitical system of sacrifices, the Old Testament priesthood. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. So the Levitical system was established, was set up and imposed until the time of Reformation. Then he goes on. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. The Levitical priesthood existed until the time of Reformation. That time of Reformation had already come by the time the author of Hebrews began to write. It came when Christ appeared. When Christ came as our great high priest, he is the great reformer that we celebrate. He is the reformer of the church. It was Christ who came into the world and found a system of worship that was established around the tabernacle, and he transformed it forever by making that tabernacle into his church, a body of people built up as a dwelling place for him. That was his reformation. He replaced a system of worship that depended on types and shadows with true worship that Jesus describes as taking place in spirit and in truth. Christ's reformation secured for us an eternal redemption, the author of Hebrews says. The Protestant Reformation simply rediscovered it. That's all that happened. The Protestant Reformation rediscovered the Reformation founded by our Lord Jesus Christ. They found a system, the Protestant Reformers. They were born into a system of worship where priests were once again offering sacrifices on an altar for the atonement of sin. And they replaced that system they replaced that altar with a table, with a feast of celebration for the sacrifice made once and for all by Jesus Christ. 
They found worshipers in the church trusting in their own good works and occasionally in indulgence here and there to secure their place in heaven. And instead, they awakened those worshipers to the security that they have and a salvation that can only come by the work of Jesus Christ, the obedience of Christ. Those truths that Christ proclaimed were republished during the Reformation. At the front of your order of worship, there's a quote of Robert Ferrer Capon's that's one that I always trot out during this Reformation season because it's a little bit shocking with its allusions to inebriation. And uh, since we think of the Reformation as being pretty buttoned up, I always think it's good to loosen things a bit. So here's Capon's description of the Reformation. He says, The Reformation was a time when men went blind, staggering drunk because they had discovered in the dusty basement of late medievalism a whole cellar full of 1,500-year-old, 200-proof grace, bottle after bottle of pure distillate of Scripture, one sip of which would convince you anyone that God saves us single-handedly. The word of the gospel, after all those centuries of trying to lift yourself into heaven by worrying about the perfection of your bootstraps, suddenly turned out to be a flat announcement that the saved were home before they started. Grace has to be drunk straight. No water, no ice, and certainly no ginger ale. Neither goodness nor badness, not the flowers that bloom in the spring of super-spirituality, could be allowed to enter into the case. The potency of grace. I apologize for those of you who got thirsty. What the reformers rediscovered was grace. That powerful, powerful drink, which convinces us at our first taste that God saves sinners single-handedly, that he does all the work. He doesn't leave some of it for us to complete. He does it all himself by his own power. J.I. Packer once famously summarized the whole of Reformed theology, the whole of Calvinism, by saying that it is the belief that God saves sinners, period. A lot of people believe, he says, that God saves sinners, but God saves us, but we also have to do this. God saves us, but we do need to appropriate somehow that work ourselves in order to make it so. All that the Reformation insists on is that God saves sinners, period. That all of the work is his alone. And so I love this quote of Capon's for emphasizing that power of grace. And of course, there is the the, the, the little dangerous tremor, the allusion to the accusation at Pentecost, being drunk with new wine, the uh, instruction that we're given, rather, to uh, find ourselves uh, intoxicated on the Holy Spirit, that motif. But to be honest with you, as I read this passage, the thing that strikes me the most, the part that I like most about his words, is where they find the grace Where did the reformers find it? They found it in the dusty basement. They found it down in the cellar. And the thing you have to realize is the grace wasn't gone. The grace hadn't disappeared. It was there. It just needed somebody to go down to the basement and bring it back up again, to wipe off the dust. The grace was there. It was waiting to be discovered. All that was necessary was for someone to go and look. Go and look. That's why we celebrate the Protestant Reformation. 
because in those days someone went down into that dusty basement and they found the grace that had been stored up when it was meant to be drunk all those generations ago. In 2 Peter chapter 3, in the first seven verses, Peter actually does have things to teach us about reformation, about reformation in the church, reformation in our lives. As we look at this passage, we're going to be asking ourselves about the work of reformation, about the hope of reformation, and finally about the goal of reformation, the work, the hope, and the goal of reformation. So listen to the words of Peter. Peter says, This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. The word of the Lord. As I said, as we consider these words, we will consider the work of Reformation, the hope of Reformation, and the goal of Reformation. We'll start with the work of Reformation, because the work of Reformation begins by looking back. The work of Reformation begins by looking back. Peter, in the very first line that we look at, tells us to remember I've written to you to stir you up to remember. You should remember what you've been taught. We've said this before, but it bears repeating that whenever Scripture starts talking to you about memory, about remembering, that command to remember, it has covenant consequences, covenant resonance. Memory talk in Scripture is covenant talk. Often, when you're told, remember this, if you look at what you're asked to remember, it'll have something to do with God's faithfulness. So you could almost, in your mind, make this adjustment. Whenever I come across the word remember, I'm going to think, ah, the history of God's covenant dealings with man, the history of God's covenant faithfulness, and you won't be far off. For example, the fourth commandment, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, That's a commandment that has covenant significance. God points back to his rest and creation and gives us a day, sets aside a day out of the seven in which we're meant to remember the rest that he had at the beginning and to think forward to the rest that he has promised to us at the end. A day of rest, to remember it, to keep it holy, to sanctify it, as a time to think back and forward on what God has done, what God has promised. Remember the words of institution that we repeat every week at the Lord's table. Do this in remembrance of me. In remembrance of me. That too is a covenant command. When we come to the Lord's table, when we eat the bread, when we drink the cup, we do it in remembrance of him in the sense that This recollects for us, it calls back to us 
the covenant promise of salvation. It reminds us we feast at the table of the Lord who has promised to save us, to give us eternal life. Every Lord's Day, which is the Christian Sabbath that we're remembering to keep holy, we come to the Lord's table and we remember him and what he's done. Now, the reason we need so many reminders is that we're so prone to consigning even the most important things down into the dusty basement of the mind. We have a great promise of salvation, and if God doesn't come down and say, you know what, set aside some time to think about this, we won't. We will forget. We will let it collect dust. So God tells us to remember, and Peter writes to us to stir us up to remember, to remember what's been promised, remember who you are. The work of reformation begins by remembering the promise of salvation, remembering. But it also involves looking back, remembering the promise and also looking back, Peter says. He cites three sources that we should look back to. He says, look back to the holy prophets. Remember, the holy prophets are the ones who predicted the coming of Christ. They prophesied that Christ would come. And now Peter says, look back, remember the words that they said. Then he points us to Christ himself, our Lord and Savior, the great reformer who changed worship forever. Look back to him. And when you look back to him, Peter says you're looking back to him through his third source, which are the apostles. But he doesn't say the apostles, does he? He says they're your apostles. They are our apostles. We think about the apostles or our messengers of God. We think of them maybe as his apostles or as Jesus's apostles. Peter says, these are the apostles given to you. They are given to you to reveal Christ to you. Listen to them. Listen to them. Listen to the message that they've brought. When you think about the Protestant Reformation, this was a time of remembering. It's during this era that, that this covenant theology that, that we celebrate really emerges. When, when we start to look at scripture and see its covenantal structure. But who did they look back to? Who did those great reformers look back to? Oftentimes, we, we act as if Martin Luther and John Calvin and Ulrich Zwingli were these great religious entrepreneurs who, during the time of Reformation, decided it was time to sort of build a more interesting, exciting church, get rid of all the stuffy tradition and do something more contemporary, more now. That's not what happened at all. These guys were in no way innovators. They were looking backwards to the church, the early church fathers. The writings of the reformers are full of the, the writings of the earliest church fathers. They went back and they looked at the way things were at the beginning and they thought, why aren't they that way anymore? They saw the way the church was governed at the beginning and said, why isn't it governed this way before? It, it, why isn't it done this way now? Why don't we practice what they practiced? They looked back to the church fathers. They looked back, of course, as Peter says, to Christ himself, to lift him high. But the question is, how do you look back to Christ if you've never met him, you've never seen him before? If nobody that you know, if nobody, none of the authorities at your church ever walked with Jesus, how do you look back to Jesus? You do it through his word. Like the incarnate word, Jesus Christ, is revealed in the written word of Scripture. So they look back to Christ by looking back to his word. The reformers themselves 
proclaimed the word. That's what they did. They just preached the word. There's a, a quote of Luther's, I don't know if it's, it's true or apocryphal, where he essentially says the Reformation was just me preaching the word and drinking beer with Philip Melanchthon and, and some other buddies, and then in the background, the Reformation happened. Who knew? But he wanted to be really clear that this was not a work of man. This isn't something we did, something we cooked up. This is something God did through us by looking back to scripture, by going back to the source in order to learn who Christ had revealed himself to be. And Peter is obviously pointing us in the same direction. When Peter says to look back to the holy prophets, where do we find the predictions of the holy prophets? Where did Peter find them? The holy prophets were long dead, but Peter found them in scripture and quoted them from scripture. The gospel of Christ is recorded in scripture. It was put into words in scripture where it could be found. The testimony of the apostles is preserved in scripture. That's where we find it in these letters. Peter is himself in the act of writing scripture when he points us back to these sources. It is scripture that proclaims the promise. And the way that we put the promise down in the dusty basement is by putting the Bible down there to collect dust. How was grace lost, or at least cellared for a while, lost track of? How did the church get to the point where there was a need to create other plans of salvation? They got there by neglecting scripture, what the word of God said was no longer being proclaimed. When the reformers went down into the cellar and brought back up the Bible, they found in the Bible a bottle of pure grace, a container filled with grace that contradicted what they'd been taught before. It was in Scripture. There's a book, if you were ever curious about why we worship the way we worship at Grace and you wanted to read about it in a, a, a deep and nerdy way, the book that I would recommend to you is by a guy named Hughes Oliphant Old. It's called Worship. Uh, it's probably his most famous book. But uh, it's not actually called Worship, although I just said that. That's what most people call it, uh, Worship. But occasionally some people will add the rest of the title, so you'll hear Worship Reformed. Worship Reformed. But that's actually not all of it. For shorthand, people will say Worship Reformed. But the whole title of the book is Worship Reformed, according to scripture. It's one of the few books whose title is as good as its content. Because if you get that title, you understand what the Reformation was all about. It wasn't about doing worship differently. It wasn't about making it new, more exciting, or anything like that. It wasn't about making Christianity more accessible. None of that. It was simply reforming it according to scripture. In other words, making it the way the Bible says it ought to be. The Bible doesn't say everything about everything, so there are some areas where if God doesn't speak, we should remain silent. But the Bible does say a lot about a lot. And one of the things it talks a lot about is worship. One of the things Scripture talks a lot about is itself and how it should be regarded and revered. If we want to be reformed, if we want to live in the light of the Reformation, the way to do that is by emphasizing the last part of that title, according to Scripture. That's what it's all about, according to Scripture. To be reformed is to be reformed according to Scripture. There is a reformed tradition, but the Reformation is not a tradition. Except to the extent that we can say it's a tradition that is meant to be constantly reforming itself 
against the witness of Scripture. The work of Reformation is not to invent a new church. It's to look back at the foundation of the one true church and reform our practice according to Scripture. That's the true work of Reformation. The work of Reformation begins by looking back to Scripture and striving to live our lives by its light. That's the work of Reformation. What about the hope of Reformation? Well, if the work of Reformation looks backward, the hope of Reformation looks to the future. And this is important for Peter because he has in mind a group of people who don't understand the present because they don't understand the future. They don't understand the future because they don't understand the past. If that gets complicated, we'll try to explain it. Peter's talking about scoffers, and he's essentially saying that if they don't see what it is that happened, then they won't see what's about to happen. They won't see what's coming if they don't remember what's already taken place. People forget the promise of salvation, and they feel free to scoff at Scripture. And the, the scoffing, he actually quotes like a hypothetical. Uh, where is the promise of his coming? Where is the promise of his coming? You talk about Jesus returning? You talk about Jesus coming back into the world? Where is he? I don't see him anywhere. And it's been a long time. It's been a really long time. I mean, it had been, by the time Peter was writing, years. Years had passed, and Jesus still hadn't come back. Like 20 years, maybe. As many as 20 years, and Jesus still hadn't returned. Well, he still hasn't returned. And it's been a lot longer since then. And if a few people then were asking, where's the promise of his coming? A lot more were asking the same thing now. Now, the promise of his coming is an interesting phrase, because when we hear it as believers, it sounds really positive. The promise of his coming speaks to the second coming. It speaks to uh, the fulfillment of our salvation, our glorification. All of those good things happen when Jesus comes again. But the people that, that, that Peter is quoting don't think of it that way. When they say, where is the promise of his coming? They're not saying, when, when is Jesus coming back to make everything wonderful? They're, they're talking more about judgment. Like you say there will be judgment. You say that, that Jesus will come again as a righteous judge, but you know what? Things have been going on the way they have basically since the beginning. The world just keeps turning in this cyclical nature. Things get better, things get worse. It's just the way of the world. There's no trajectory to history. Things just happen. Uh, hard for me to take seriously all of your talk about judgment, all of your talk about the need to be obedient, to be righteous. That just doesn't make a lot of sense. It uh, Essentially what they're saying is, I can't believe what you're telling me about the future because it doesn't make sense with what I see in the world right now. There's a contradiction between those two things. Peter says these scoffers are blind to the future because they've forgotten the past. And then he gives us a story to remember. It's the story of Noah, which he already referenced in chapter 2. But the story of Noah is a big touchstone for Peter because he finds at the very beginning of the book of Genesis this structure in place for God working the way the gospel says God will work. Right? God says, I'm righteous, I'm holy, I cannot abide sin, I will punish sin. And yet, through the whole course of Scripture, you see people sinning and getting away with it. In the world all around us, we see people sinning and getting away with it. 
and see people doing good and seemingly being punished for it, it doesn't seem like God could possibly be the righteous judge he claims to be based on everything he permits to happen. It seems like God has a lot to answer for if he really is such a good God. Peter enters into that conversation and says, yeah, but don't you remember? Don't you remember what happened before? And he goes back to the story of Noah when wickedness ran rampant in the world and as a result that God punished the wicked and saved the righteous. And there was a big disproportion between those two groups because there had been no spirit restraining the evil of men in those days. So Peter says, we already have an example of exactly this kind of thing. God tells us this is what happened before. It's going to happen again. We should expect this to be the case. The scoffers say, you claim the world is this way, but the world is really that way. There's a contradiction in the way we see the world. The future that is promised by God cannot be true based on the present that we have here. And Peter's essentially saying, yeah, but the Bible explains the present. It doesn't just make promises about the future. It describes to us why the world is the way that it is. If you paid more attention to the story of Noah, you would understand, he says, why this judgment has been prolonged so far. God made a promise after that first judgment. He sealed that promise with a sign, that rainbow in the sky, meant to show his mercy that he would not destroy the world as he had just done. And there was a long period of mercy that followed that we still live in now, where God is not immediately punishing and destroying. God is not coming through and scouring the fallen world and, and destroying all of the wicked. That's not what's happening, not because there's some contradiction in what God has said, but because of what God has said, because of the promise of mercy that God has made. The facts on the ground, in other words, don't disprove the testimony of Scripture. They, they uphold that testimony. The frustrating thing is, and, and I think Peter probably felt this, oftentimes the people who dismiss what the Bible is saying actually don't know what the Bible is saying. I hear this a lot, people telling me things in the Bible that couldn't possibly be true, and I'm like, no, you're right, they wouldn't be if that was in the Bible, but that's not what the Bible teaches. The thing is, it's not a mystery what's in the Bible. It's not difficult to discover what's in the Bible. The Bible is actually... <clears throat> one of the most accessible books in human history. The thing that prevents us from knowing what's in Scripture is, is more a lack of interest than a lack of access. Peter basically says, I mean, the reason that you don't understand why things are the way they are is because you don't read the Scripture. You don't look back to what God has revealed. The Reformation looks back to Scripture and as a result, has a different view of the future that is to come. The hope of Reformation looks to the coming of Christ. The promise of his coming for us, that's words of hope. Words that we can hold on to and feel hope in. When people lose sight of the past, they forget the prophets, the apostles. Their hopes shift from the promise of his coming to the promise of something else. And it's no accident that the less 
we know of Scripture, the less our hope is found in the promises of Jesus Christ. The work of Reformation means getting the sources right, but the hope of Reformation is getting our hearts right, fixing our hopes on the right thing. Reformation in our lives is not just about rediscovering the past, it's about, weird as it sounds, rediscovering the future that has been promised to us as well. The hope of Reformation looks to the future because it looks to the promise of his coming as a good thing. And lastly, there's the goal of Reformation. What is the goal of Reformation? The goal of Reformation is union with Christ. Union with Christ. Now, if you do what I did first thing this morning and, and, and go through the news of the day and read all of the think pieces about the Reformation, the charge that is going to come through again and again is that the Reformation was divisive. That the Reformation was a great fragmentation of the church, a great destructive work that shattered the unity of the church, and the hope for the future is to return to that pristine unity that we enjoyed before the Reformers messed everything up. And you'll hear this from a variety of sources, a, a lot of people on all sides of the debate telling us that the problem of the Reformation was essentially its disunity, that it drove wedges between people who had been united before. Now that always suggests to me, number one, that people don't know their church history very well. It would be surprising to Eastern Orthodox, Coptic, Christians, different people like that to know that everybody was united before the Reformation. Uh, it wasn't the case. But it also wasn't the case that the goal of the Reformation was splintering, fragmentation, or disunity. Unity was the goal of the Reformation. It just wasn't the unity we value. The union that was sought in the Reformation was union with Christ, and that mattered more to the Reformers than any other kind of union. They wanted to be in union with Christ and in union with the people who were in union with Christ by faith, just as Moses once in Egypt, seeing the covenant people in bondage, gave up his unity with the Egyptians in order to identify with the people of God. Moses wanted to be in union with the people who were in union with God just as the apostles who began by teaching in the synagogues and were eventually driven out of them had to choose what union was important to them. Now it may have been at that moment that the apostles could have done a reality check and said, guys, look, if we keep pushing this Jesus stuff in such an exclusive way, eventually we're not going to be able to remain within the synagogues. It's too divisive. So we should dial this back. We should dial this back, otherwise we, we could sacrifice the union that we enjoy. But that's not the choice the apostles made. When the time came to leave the synagogues, they left the synagogue rather than leaving their union with Christ. The author of Hebrews says Christ is to be found where Christ was crucified outside the gate, outside the camp. And it is sometimes necessary if one is to be in union with Christ to be out of union with those who are not in union with him. The reality is a lot of us value unity at all costs. 
The most important thing is to get along. And I can sympathize with that. In this divisive age, I hate the fact that we're so divided over every little thing. That people treat every little thing as if it's an ultimate issue. And that if we don't agree on these things, we have to be at odds. We're from different tribes. It's frustrating constantly to be disunited with everyone around you. And as a result, that longing for unity, I think, is something deeply human. It's not something to be dismissed lightly, even if it sometimes leads us astray. But the thing is, as we look back on the Reformation, not just the Protestant Reformation, but, but the Reformation that Christ inaugurated, and the work in the lives of the apostles, we see that although they did not seek disunity with others, they were willing to endure it if that's what it took to be in union with Christ. And I would say that's a valuable lesson for us today, to be willing, if necessary, to be out of union with people we would like to be in community with in order that we can be in community truly with Christ. The goal of Reformation now and forever is union with Christ. It's grace that unites us to Jesus, that gives his righteousness to us as our own righteousness. It's grace that saves us from an eternity separated from Jesus and restores us so that we can be the men and women that we were meant to be. Grace does all that work, and all that work, if you think about it, is union with Christ. All of it is what we receive by being one with him, by being fellow heirs with him. And any unity that keeps you from fully uniting with Christ is not worth holding on to. We reflect on the promise of his coming. Jesus is coming again, Peter says. For some, he will be a judge. For some, he will be a savior. If the work of Reformation is to remind us of that promise made long ago, and the hope of Reformation is to set our hearts on the fulfillment of that promise so that our hope is found in our future and not in our present, then the goal of Reformation must surely be to meet with him face to face. Throughout Scripture, those who are close to God aspire to seeing him face to face. In our lectionary reading last week, we heard of this aspiration that Moses had, where he says to God, show me your face, show me your face. But God can't do it. No one can see him and live, he says. So all Moses, as near as he was to God, is allowed to see, is, is as it were, like the, the shadow or the, the remnants, the back parts of his glory. But Paul aspires one day to know him fully, to know Christ fully, even as he has been fully known, to see him face to face. That's what the promise of his coming has in store for us, that we will be in union with Christ, not, not uh, hypothetically, not as a doctrinal idea, but in reality, that we will know him face to face and be known by him fully. Our hearts need reformation just as much as our churches do. Our basements need to be cleaned out. And, and the doctrine that we've stuffed down there needs to be dusted off and drunk again. We need reformation. We need to look to the past and see what God has promised. 
We need to look to the future and see what God will do for us. And above all, we need to look to Christ. We need to let the cross reshape us, reshape our hopes into the shape of his cross. Our passions must be reoriented. Our hopes must point in a different direction. Let Jesus be your Lord and Savior. Let his kingdom come. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.